Hello, and welcome to the Spike podcast. I'm Fraser Myers, and with me this week, Spike's deputy editor, Tom Slater. Hello, hello. And Spike columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, we'll discuss Boris Johnson and Carl Beach, and I talk to Lindsay Shepard about Canada's transgender waxing controversy. But before we get into the show, I'd like to remind you that this podcast would not be possible without the generosity of our listeners. Lots of you already give us monthly donations and one-offs, and for that, we are hugely grateful. If you haven't already made a donation, why not consider it? It's the best way to show your appreciation for what we do and will help us enormously to get our message out there further. So if you'd like to give a donation today, just go to spiked-online.com and click the big red donate button in the top right corner. Now, on with the show. Boris Johnson's dream fulfilled. He's our new Prime Minister. Never mind the backstop. The buck stops here. When he says the UK is leaving the EU on October the 31st, he means it. The EU isn't budging. We will be able to look back on this period as the beginning of a new golden age. As expected, Boris Johnson became Prime Minister this week after a stonking victory over his leadership rival Jeremy Hunt. On Wednesday, Johnson appointed his first cabinet and brought a number of prominent Brexiteers into government. The survival of Johnson's government will likely come down to one single factor. Will he and his team deliver Brexit? Tom, what are your thoughts? Well, this week I've kind of had two responses to everything that's been going on. The first thing is to be kind of continually irritated, although sometimes amused by the level of Boris derangement syndrome mm. that him finally taking number 10 has provoked, you know, in the run up to this campaign, this, the kind of daily barrage that he was a racist, a homophobe, an Islamophobe, all these quotes kind of wrenched out of context in order to justify that this kind of general sense that he was Britain's Trump or the thinking man's Alf Garnet, just as an attempt to sort of delegitimize him particularly striking I think because really aside from the issue of the European Union and maybe crime he's pretty much a metropolitan liberal on every other issue so I thought yeah. it was kind of interesting that people seem to hate Brexit so much or just have that kind of internal intra-elite bitchiness dislike of him for whatever reason going back to Eton or mm. you know the Oxford Union or anything else that um, they're willing to really just you know train all of their guns on him you know, trying to delegitimize him. I think a lot of that is about Brexit and their hatred of that. But I'm also a little bit worried on the Brexit side of a kind of like a parallel malady setting in of this this Boris Johnson delusion, this idea yeah. that now that the blonde haired one has entered office, that we've got a believer in number 10 with his bouncy optimism standing up for Britain, that suddenly everything is going to be fine. Now, I like some people who have been relatively encouraged over the past 24 hours by some of the appointments, particularly Dominic Cummings, the kind of brain behind Vote Leave being brought in. He's a bloke who, whatever you think of him, takes no prisoners and has always understood that in order to get Brexit over the line, it would take really kind of radical reform of the civil service. He's known as someone who will get things done. That's encouraging. But at the same time, it doesn't change the fact that all of the paths that Boris has set out so far to a meaningful Brexit by the 31st of October, which is his big pledge, don't really add up. He hmm. says he wants to renegotiate. It's quite clear that the EU aren't willing to renegotiate in any meaningful way. Um, he says that he's willing to take us out with no deal, yet at the same time, not only is he downplaying the chances of no deal, he's also faced with a parliament and a speaker, which have made it very clear that they don't want that and will refuse to let that happen. Part of his pitch is that he could win a general election, correct, you know, get a Brexit majority and then force this through parliament. The idea that he's electoral gold dust, though, is something that remains to be tested, to be honest. Um, and whilst he's very popular amongst some people, he's very unpopular amongst other people. And my worry is that what we're headed towards is Theresa May's deal 
you know, the pig with some lipstick on it effectively. Mm. That's what my concern is. I would love to be proven wrong, but I think those of us who are pro-Brexit, but not necessarily pro-Tory, have been waiting long enough for the Tory party to get its act together. And I think it's now is their time to kind of put up or shut up in some respects. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Tom. I think although there's change at number 10 and change in, in the cabinet, you know, the the circumstances surrounding Brexit haven't really changed. Boris Johnson inherits a parliamentary majority of around two people. And even that isn't a given because so many Tories, you know, people on his own side are unwilling to countenance a no-deal Brexit. We know, for instance, that, you know, Philip Hammond, the former chancellor, has uh, is just one example of someone who has, is willing to do anything to stop that from, from happening. Out there in the country, the, the establishment is still against Brexit. The fact is that the capitalist class in general, you know, big industry in particular, will do whatever they can to stop Brexit. They are largely responsible for for the kind of deal that we have at the moment, for the promises that Theresa May and Philip Hammond were making to industry. That's why we've ended up with a deal that basically replicates the EU structures. And the fact is, if they were in fa- ever in favour of Brexit, we would have left by now or never would have joined. So that resistance is, is still going to, to remain. So I, I am... Not particularly optimistic, um, because I, I, I have yet to see that, um, something has, something material and substantial has changed. But, you know, I'm still hopeful and, uh, really would love to be proven wrong. I don't know. After listening to that list, it's hard not to just sink into your chair. <laughs> There's a serious point in that. It's really hard at the moment to muster up any enthusiasm for Boris Johnson to muster up really any enthusiasm about Brexit in general, because like, let's not forget, it's been over a thousand days since we voted Mm. and we've been kind of beaten and bruised as leave voters. And as it happens, remain voters who want to see democracy enacted. And it just feels like this is, it doesn't feel like Boris Johnson's appointment has uh, made the end any clearer and made the end date any clearer. I don't, wouldn't want to bet any money on the 31st of October actually being held up. But I think this is an important thing that I've been trying to tell myself to not be pessimistic is that I think Boris Johnson will stir the pot sufficiently that something new will happen. I think this is the only thing we can really hold on to because you're both absolutely right. I think if anyone trusts the Tories to do this at this point is delusional uh, or hasn't been paying attention for the last two years. Um, On the other side, you have the Labour Party come out, as we've discussed on this podcast, as adamantly against Brexit. So don't you dare trust your vote with them. Although they've now clarified that they're not a Remain party, confusingly, which makes no sense whatsoever. (laughs) But what could happen is that the more, if we are to believe the hype around Boris Johnson being this incredibly divisive figure, um, if we kind of push for bigger divisions like that within the old parties and hopefully fingers crossed, you know, bring an end to them, mm. see them finally crumble, then something new can come in its place. And though that's a real risk actually to take to kind of pin your hopes on destruction, basically <laughs> and a certain level of anarchy. But I think that more embodies the kind of Brexit spirit of a desire for a ch- shakeup. So I'm, you know, I, even if I was a Tory member, I don't know that I'd be that excited about Boris Johnson. And it is worth remembering that only was 120,000 people um, have had a say on him. So, you know, there's questions about democracy left, right and centre in this discussion, not least because he's refusing to rule out using royal prerogative to essentially uh, force Parliament to be unable to block Brexit, which is a democratic outrage. 
I think it's just a case of retaining this idea that let's not forget we had the European elections. There were some shock results there. Let's not forget the Brexit party. Let's not forget the many, many groups of Leave voters who are forming across the country and pushing grassroots ways. And I think the game's not lost yet. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a fair point as well about the fact that Boris Johnson and I think the combination of the European elections and Boris winning has moved the dial a little bit. You already see it in some of the media discussion. Mm. You see it in the way in which um, all of these kind of previously kind of Remainer Tories have kind of completely fallen in line. You know, people like Matt Hancock effectively having to repudiate everything they've ever said about No Deal <laughs> constantly on the radio. It's quite clear um, that the centre of gravity in the Tory party has changed, you know, from a more kind of Theresa May compromise position to something a little bit more hardline. Um, it's not insignificant that now we have a government that is at least nominally and has pledged to the public that we will leave by the 31st of October, that no deal won't be a disaster. Vote leave have effectively taken over number 10 with key staffers from that campaign now um, very much at the heart of policy. And given the fact that, as we saw in the BBC Panorama documentary last week, where Michel Barnier actually said that at no point did anyone from the British side say that no deal was going to happen, you know, this is not insignificant. But at the same time, I think you know, we, we do have to approach this with a level of scepticism and kind of recognise as well that given all of the mistakes that have happened so mm. far, given that the backstop is seen as a kind of, you know, as holy writ at this point in many European capitals, given the fact that we did all that way back submit to the request for the talks to be staged in such a way that basically rigged it in favour of the European Union, how do you unpick all of these things, you know, and you can't just close your eyes and believe that it's going to happen. So all of this remains to be seen, but at the same time, at least the test has been made very very clear. Yeah. The Tories are supposed to get us out with a meaningful Brexit to pursue no deal if it comes to it. And we'll see what happens. We can't say fairer than that. Well, we are relying on the Tories recognising that their fate hangs on delivering yeah. Brexit. And, you know, unless the unless Boris Johnson, which I'm sure perhaps he is aware, unless he is made aware of the fact that this party could potentially come to an end if they don't deliver this promise... The best hope for leaving is the recognition within the Tory party that they are finished as an electoral Mm. force if they don't deliver Brexit, probably by October the 31st. I think we also have to take a slightly longer view in terms of the fact that if Boris Johnson does do what he says he's going to do, let's say he does the best option for for certainly us around this table and go with the no deal and completely cut ties, that isn't the end. That's just Mm. the beginning. And what, you know, I think part of the problem here is that if you are prime minister, then you're not just controlling Brexit, you're in control of the country and the decisions you make after Brexit will be Mm. meaningful and important as well. And, you know, certainly we've written on Spiked in the past about the importance of abolishing the monarchy, of reassessing the House of Lords, of all these things that I don't think Boris Johnson's necessarily going to enact. But let's get to that first place first. It has to say one positive thing, I think, of Boris Johnson being appointed is that it's drawn out all the nutters uh, in a way that is quite helpful. And hilarious. (laughs) One article, I mean, it gets as crazy as this one article published with the headline, the clown is crowned as the country burns in hell. It's 33 (laughs) degrees in London and a dude has lied his way about bananas and condoms to high office. I mean, (laughs) obviously underlying that is... As Tom said, it's not actually about Boris Johnson, it's about Brexit. It's a hatred of Brexit. And it's important to note that the anti-Boris protest of sorts that was out um in the in the hot weather this week was littered with anti-Brexit placards. And this fight isn't about the blonde beast. It isn't about the Tory party necessarily. It's not even about austerity or any of those sort of old slogans anymore. It's about hating on Brexit. So let's be clear about that. And that's helpful to see that in its clarity. 
so that those of us who do believe in democracy can be clear in our answer. You're listening to The Spiked Podcast. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher and more. And if your provider allows you to, why not give us a rating and a review while you're there? It really helps new listeners find the show. Carl Beach, a fantasist and paedophile, was this week convicted of 12 charges of perverting the course of justice and one charge of fraud. Beach falsely claimed that he was the victim of a VIP paedophile ring that included a prime minister, MPs and senior military figures. Beach's crazed ramblings were treated as credible by police, were repeated in Parliament and splashed across the media, dragging a number of totally innocent people through the mud. Ella, what are your thoughts on on this case? It's utterly incredible. And having watched a series of documentaries, one on Channel 4 that stuck out to me, a news report, of the footage of him uh, laying out his testimony to various police officers, it's really sickening because Mm. you can see how police and other people who are interviewing him are just lapping it up and how much he's enjoying it. It's yeah. it's really quite remarkable and disturbing. Um, but this has to be a wake-up call to the Criminal Prosecution Service, to the police, to the Met, to say you have to drop this believe the victim mentality because it's very clear that exactly what has happened in relation to Carl Beach uh, has happened elsewhere yeah. in relation to um, false allegations of rape and wrongful convictions of young men. There's a definitely and undeniably a culture growing within the justice system of, of failing to enact justice, mm. of putting the focus on believing a victim. This case for really quite political motives because it was post Jimmy Savile. Matt was really nervous about being seen to do anything other than, you know, being very sympathetic yeah. to victims of abuse. And so then you have this gross injustice happen. Mm. And one thing that I certainly am not going to let forget is the MPs who are involved in this. So yeah. most notably Tom Watson, the Labour mm, MP, yeah. who for political motives to try and get at conservatives mm. made this his big issue yeah. and he believed lies yeah i think the tom watson thing in particular because he's so far just completely refused to own up to his role in all of this he acted almost as a direct advocate not only for carl beach but also for the other fantasists known as darren who corroborated mm. some of these claims of this vip paedophile ring used parliamentary privilege to effectively just read out their testimonies when um, the former tory minister leon Britton had died afterwards knowing not only that he had parliamentary privilege but also you know the dead can't sue you for defamation um he referred to him as like quoting carl beach as this evil individual one of the most evil people in england you know just spreading what turned out to be an absolute pack of lies about people because, as Ella said, uh, he saw opportunistic political gain both for his side of politics but also for himself. Mm. That's the number one person Tom Watson cares about. And the fact that so far he's been able to wriggle out of any real criticism of that, he's even tried to pose as a victim of Carl Beach himself (laughs) insofar as he was someone who was, you know, hoodwinked by all of this. But I think it's also worth remembering, like, the nature of these allegations is remarkable that no one thought to be more sceptical in the face yeah. of this. You know, it did come in a particular context. You had this shift towards this believe the victim mantra. You had the post-Jimmy Savile kind of feeding frenzy. But even so, I mean, for instance, some of the things that um, 
Cole Beach was uh, alleging didn't really add up. But then also some of the Darren allegations are fascinating to go back to. I mean, at one point he suggested that he witnessed um, a 30-year-old man with Down syndrome being ripped apart by two cars. They then investigated this and found there was nothing of this. The luridness of these allegations, Mm. the involvement of activist news websites like Exaro, the fact that you had, you know, Detective Superintendent Kenny McDonald come out before really any investigations were underway as part of Operation Midland, which was sparked by these allegations, and saying that he believed Nick, as Beach was then known, to be credible and true. This is not how you investigate these kinds of claims. And just on that point about believing the victims, you're doing far much more damage to people who do have you know, genuine cases of assault and abuse to the cause of them, the cause of real victims, by allowing this believe the victim mantra to take root because it is an invitation to fantasists, yep. to grifters um, and to opportunists to hop on this um, bandwagon for personal gain. And in the process, you're making it um, far more difficult for those people with um, real cases to be brought to justice to do so. And at the same time as you're hampering justice, we're creating a culture in which being a victim is glamorous in itself. I mean, part of the reason why Nick Carl Beach was produced and came to the fore, he was, you know, and quite possibly has some serious mental issues. I mean, it's worth noting that he is now a convicted paedophile himself. Someone should have picked that up along the way. But the fact that he felt like he would gain social status, he was having a great time talking to news reporters. He was, you know, having sympathy poured upon him within this culture of victimhood that makes, you know, something as terrible as being a paedophile victim, something to celebrate and talk about continuously and wear it as part of your identity badge. And we want to be really careful about that because while there shouldn't be any stigma about being a a victim of something, it's certainly not something to celebrate. And when you create a culture in which glamorizes victim status, you end up getting fantasists like Carl Beach. James Hartfield outlines this very well in his his piece about Tom Watson and Carl Beach, but they're, you know, over the past, 30 years ironically since the satanic abuse scares which were almost completely untrue but nevertheless since then a kind of whole network of support organizations and advocacy Mm. groups have have grown up some more specialists but some like the nspcc have done a lot more work on child sexual abuse to the point where you know carl beach was actually invited to give talks to school children Mm. about his experiences of abuse Uh, the nss the nspcc no less yes exactly (laughs) on behalf of people who are supposed to be protecting children I mean, it's absolutely extraordinary. One of the interesting details about this case, which is so common to um, a lot of cases of of false allegations, particularly regarding children, was around this kind of XRO news service. And basically one of the journalists there was pretty instrumental in kind of cooking up these allegations because he produced this dossier of pictures of famous people from the 1980s, showed them to Carl Beach, and Carl Beach would say, yes, that one, that one, not that one. I recognise him, Mm. I recognise him. And that was actually how they generated the names of, of these people who are alleged to have been abused. And so this evidence was almost completely manufactured yeah. and yet taken as as basically good coin, not only on the, in this cowboy outfit, XRO News, but also in the mainstream media and then even worse, by the police. And, and the people it dragged in as well, it's a small point, but it's an important one as well, which is that the, the kind of the way in which the paedophile panic also rehabilitated homophobia in some respects as yes. well, because mm-hmm. some of the people who got really caught up in this, you think about Harvey Proctor, um, who actually came out really swinging and said this is a homophobic witch hunt when he was um, part of the kind of Carl Beach allegations, the fact that Ted Heath, the former Prime Minister, who, let's just say there's always been um, speculation about his private life, um, was also dragged into this. 
Because, you know, especially when you're talking about the 70s and 80s, etc., there were a lot of men in high office who had to sneak around, shall we say, mm. because of um, their sexuality and because of the fact that that wasn't something they could openly admit to at that period in time. So that was a real horrendous cost of it as well. And I think the one thing that's really worth remembering, um, because it's, it's easy to focus on the individual, but the problem here is not Carl Beach. I mean, he, by all measures, is a very twisted, sadistic and, you know, abusive man himself. The problem is that we've ended up with a system kind of constructed around him, which allows fantasists like him and moral entrepreneurs who jumped on his bandwagon to pursue these kinds of crazy cases. And that's the thing that we have to tackle. You know, it's not about focusing on the horrendous morality of this one individual paedophile, as it turns out. Um, mm. It's about how did so many people take him so seriously for so long. You're listening to The Spiked Podcast. Spiked has no subscriptions and no paywalls. All of our content is free. We rely on the generosity of our listeners and readers to keep us going and growing. For those of you who already donate to Spiked, we can't thank you enough. It really means a lot to the team. But if you haven't already, then why not consider giving Spiked a donation? You can make a one-off payment or give monthly by going to spiked-online.com and clicking the big red donate button in the top right corner. In Canada, a trans woman has taken 16 beauticians to a human rights tribunal for refusing to wax him. Some of these women were asked to perform a Brazilian wax on Jessica, formerly Jonathan, Yaniv. In other words, to wax his male genitalia. It's perhaps the clearest case yet of the clash between trans rights and women's rights, essentially asking, should a woman be forced by law to touch a penis and testicles against her will if the owner of the penis says he is a woman? Lindsay Shepard is a free speech activist in Canada who was recently banned from Twitter for misgendering Jessica Yaniv. What you're about to hear is an edited version of a chat with Shepard over Skype. You can read the whole conversation on Spiked by going to spiked-online.com. I started off by asking her when she first became aware of the waxing controversy. I've been aware of um, Jessica Yaniv's activities for quite a few months so although there was a human rights tribunal publication ban on the the waxing cases, there was this blog outside of Canada, I don't I don't know where it was based, that knew the identity. So once the identity was released, then there were some screenshots released. So I saw these leaked screenshots which came from um that you know, then called Jonathan asking for um, advice from women in a in a Facebook makeup group about um, should I teach a ten year old girl how to use a tampon? How do I approach a ten year old girl in the female washroom? What do um, girls do in the bathroom stall? Do they wipe pussy, change panty liner, all the gross stuff that we girls do? And is he going to see tampon strings hanging out of a girl's thing? So I mean, this is how he operates, and to me, that is that's um, something I you don't give excuses for, right? He's clearly trying to either get off on the fantasies of whatever he's fantasizing about, or he really is planning to use, you know, to approach girls in the female washrooms using the advice he's given. But then his human rights tribunal cases started 
this month, actually. They were there in July. I mean, he has filed 16 human rights tribunal complaints against all women aestheticians who declined to um, wax him. And this this became a, a thing about waxing his balls because that's that was a big part of it. A lot of it was Brazilian waxing. Um, so he literally wanted unwilling women to handle his penis and balls. Um, but then we learn, I guess there's some arm and leg waxing cases, but women he's asking to do this, you know, they usually come from a religion or culture where you don't touch men outside of your husband, right? So that's why these women who, I know there was like a Sikh woman, she said, um, she provides women only services because she doesn't touch men outside of her husband, even for work. But the thing with Jessica Yaniv is we've seen from his Twitter history that he's, this is why no one's really calling him a leftist is because he's quite anti-immigration. He wants immigration checks in the heavily Sikh areas of where he lives. And so we, we kind of deduce from this that he is specifically targeting immigrant women to try to prove a point to them that his gender identity is more important than their culture or religion. So he specifically chooses women who would pro likely have a problem with this, and then he hauls them into the Human Rights Tribunal, which I, I can't even begin to talk about has, you know, you lose out on a day's work because you have to show up there. Maybe, they maybe had to... I mean, the women describe all the, the problems they had. It's, it takes time to get there, um, and it's it's a waste of time and resources because they don't... In my view, this just should not be happening. This was not legitimate, right? And what was it that led to your ban from Twitter? I made a video a couple months ago called The Tampon String Enthusiast of British Columbia on YouTube because I got a seven-day suspension at that point for for um, talking about Yaniv. My interaction with Jessica Yaniv that likely ended in my ban, the, the funny thing is when I got my seven-day suspension, Twitter told me the tweets because you have to remove them. This time... Um, they actually didn't tell me. They just said, your account is suspended. I filed for an appeal, and then they denied the appeal. So I don't actually know the specific tweets, but it happened right after. So Jessica Yaniv started arguing with this other like anonymous account and was saying it was me, and it wasn't. But I was still getting the notifications because she tagged me. And then she said, um, I have a loose vagina from pushing out a 10-pound baby, but... I, like as in, you know, Jessica Yaniv, still has a tight pussy. And then she she starts, he starts talking about um, a sex toy or whatever. It's just very, it's so depraved. So I reply and I say, you know, if you're trying to sound like a woman, this is not really the way to do it because, you know, that you kind of sound like a man who doesn't have a functional romantic relationship with a woman. You know, like saying things like, oh, you have a, you have a loose vagina. It's kind of like how a bro would talk. So then I say that, and then Yaniv replies, making fun of a reproductive abnormality I have called the septate uterus, which is causes higher um, rates of miscarriage in women who have it. So it's it's like literally a wall in your uterus. I've just described it in an interview before. And so Yaniv, who I didn't even know watches the interviews on podcasts I do, 
he said he made some joke about like Donald Trump building a wall in my uterus or something. It, it was a little bit nonsensical. Like it was a little incoherent because in general, Yaniv is a little bit incoherent. But uh, anyway, so I was um, banned the next day. The thing is, I mean, people are pointing out that I violated the terms of service. And yes, I did. Sure. I misgendered Yaniv. Um, and so that technically should result in punishment. Okay, fine. Um, it is something to think about, though. Now, Twitter is saying, in order to be on our platform, you have to accept the gender ideology du jour. If you don't, like, you better shut up or you better get off our platform, right? And what questions does this raise about women's rights? Megan Murphy was banned because of the same individual, right? Like, she said, she said him in re- in reference to Yaniv, and she said men aren't women though. And apparently, those are the two tweets that got her kicked off. Really, the whole gist of her argument is let's keep women's spaces, and then if trans people would like to have spaces, they can create trans spaces, right? Like, why is it always coming down to the um, invasion of women's spaces, whether it's a women's prison, a women's um, recovery home, or why is it women's sports? You know, because it really does make you think, why is it always like women's things? That was Lindsay Shepard talking to me from Canada. You can read the rest of the interview by going to spikes-online.com. That's all from us this week. If you enjoyed the Spike podcast, then why not give us a rating, a review, or even a donation? Anything you can give us is a huge help, not only to this show, but it also allows us to keep producing more and more Spike content every day. We'll be back next week, but in the meantime, keep visiting Spiked at spiked-online.com.